0: All right. Is there anybody out there today? They start snickering. I just—I didn't say anything yet. I just started a question. Um, we have a set of verses we're working on together, and maybe you're ready to share it with everybody. Anyone out there ready? Okay. Then we're all doing it together. Ephesians 1, 3 through 3-14. It's going to be up here on the board. Ready? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him, In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things in the earth. In him, also, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. You're getting closer, aren't you? This is a great passage. You've gone through that with me now for some uh, 15 times. We're doing pretty good. But uh, we have a few more to go. As we're working our way through this passage, we're just going to verse 14. And today I want your attention with me in verse 11 and 12. Chapter 1, Ephesians 1, 11 and 12. We're going to especially highlight the, verse 12 in this, in the big picture of the fact that we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose, His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will. To the end that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, would be to the praise of his glory. That's where we're going to focus today. Heavenly Father, help us again, we pray. You have been teaching us much in this passage (coughs) about your love for us, about what you are doing in us. And we pray again as we focus on this, we will turn our attention to you in praise and trust. Thank you, Lord, for our time. Pray that you're blessed as we spend time in your word and at your feet. Please teach us today. In Jesus' name, amen. As we looked at this passage last week, uh, the whole concept of being an heir is quite a fascinating study. Uh, we only focused on that plus some of the parts that work around that in verse number 11 and 12, um, Brought up, really, the, the point was to the praise of his glory. But there's some complication in the whole concept, even trying to memorize it. Those of you who have been memorizing find these verses to be kind of tongue twisters as you go through it, because of the details, and, and it's hard to wrap our brains around parts of this. Um, but the end result that we were talking about last week, in the end of verse number 12, is to the praise of His glory. I want to clarify that just a touch here this morning. It does not say technically that we should be to the praise of His glory as if we're not. and Maybe we're going to work our way up. Uh, Or even as the New American Standard renders it here the concept that we would be to the praise of his glory. Now, that does make a statement about something in the future. But what's interesting is in the text, it's not talking about the future, it's talking about right now. And so, this is the present tense we're looking at here. And so, with that, I I prefer to pull the should-be and the would-be's out of there because I don't want to give any intention here that uh, we're trying to earn a place or work our way up toward a place where we bring Him glory. We're talking about our position in Christ all the way through. Not our works in Christ. We do not earn the position we have in Christ. To praise Him, it's not because of something we have done, that we bring that about, but the passage actually says, to the end, for this purpose, if you will, for us to be, and that's right now, to be to the praise of His glory. I want to stress that, and I'm trying not to muddle it up, but if you just turn the page in Ephesians to chapter 2, it says it so clearly, and I want you to see what he does in verse 4, On to verse number 10 or so. Uh, This is is one of the the most fascinating chapters. Ephesians chapter number 2. And it starts in a negative way, as we all know. I bring that up quite a bit. But I'm going to start in verse 4, where God does something. (laughs) It says, and God, and I like, but God, or you have this, but God. This is the center of the focus. You ready? This is him, not us. What did he do? It says, being rich in mercy, because of his great love in which he loved us. Notice, we're just the recipients in this verse. He's doing all the work. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, so we contributed nothing to this great event. Nothing. We were dead in our transgressions. He made us alive together with Christ. That's pure grace, folks. Pure grace. So undeserved. We were dead. We were in sins. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. But here it doesn't stop. Because your salvation from sin and death is not the whole picture. Keep going. And raised us up with him, verse 6 says. And, if that wasn't enough, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That is your position in Christ. All of this is spoken in the past tense. God's the only one I know that could look into the future and speak in the past tense. Because in his eyes, this is completed. I love the way the verbs even read in English. He raised us up. He seated us. Those are done in his eyes. It's already done. His work in saving us has taken even just from where we were to where we're going to be. And God says it's all done. Isn't that beautiful? Just think that through for a minute. There will be no empty seats in heaven. If God is the one who saved you from your sins, and you say, oh, I don't know if I'm going to make it through, it's God's work. He raises you up. He seats you in the heavenlies. And here's His purpose. You ready? Verse number 7. This purpose is, so that in the ages to come, He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You say, what's that? God sets up a display, if you will, of what His grace can do and the power of the work of Christ on the cross. And guess who the display is? You and me. That he might show forever what his grace can do. And there you are. That's why I know it's not going to fail. What has God ever done that's failed? Nothing at all. This is a power, just powerful picture for us. Keeps going. Verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. I'm trying to make that point clearly, I hope. It is the gift of God, not of works so that no one may boast. And here, we usually start, this is another memory verse, but at a different time. But put it in its context. For we are His workmanship. This is His job. This is what He's doing. You and I are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Notice, It's a first reference to our duty. All that information goes before what he says about our duty. All the rest is in light of what God has done. He has already done it to save you. You are not the agent that brought about salvation. He is. We are recipients. We are receivers. We are responders. We know the verse says we love because he first loved us. I would add, we serve because he first saved us. That's the picture you have in front of you. That's why in chapter number 1, verses 11 and 12, we're talking about being an heir. We're talking about we being an heir to the praise of his glory. And we step back and say again, but this is God's will. This is God's will. We didn't weasel our way into the relationship so that we can get something out of it. He found us. He put us in this relationship. He made us heirs. He designed it all with a great purpose. And that great purpose in this passage is to bring glory to His Son. Is that something you've seen before in Scripture? Try Philippians 2. You know that passage? You probably should. Especially right around verse number 4 and 5, where he turns to us and says, now have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. He says, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Taking on the form of a bondservant. And being made in the likeness of man, and being found in the fashion of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason God highly exalted him. And bestowed on him a name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Yours too? Yours too. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. What? That Jesus Christ is Lord. What's the last phrase? To the glory of God the Father. This is a fascinating thing we're learning together here as we're walking through this passage. I could dig out Praise and passage and passage after passage that comes to the same conclusion because God is consistent. We are right now and always the result of God's work of salvation through Jesus Christ. With a purpose of forever being a display of what God can do to save sinners. To the praise of of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Does that make sense to you? That's what he's done. That's the part we're in. Isn't it funny how so many times we we go into the middle of the day and we think, boy, am I really botching my uh, my spiritual life all up. I'm making a mess of everything. Have you ever felt that way? And you thought, well, God's going to go and change the book. (laughs) He doesn't think I'm going to measure up. He is measuring you according to His Son. And by the way, how are you going to look when you get into glory? John says, We don't know what we shall be, but we know this. When we see Him, we shall be like Him. You know, God loves His Son so much He wants all of us to be like Him too. Man, this is going to work. I love it. It's a good thing to focus on As a pastor, here's how I would say, so if all that's true, act like it. Live like it. Think like it. Your identity is in Jesus Christ. You're an heir to all these things. That's not a maybe. That's a fact. Okay, just to prep you for the sermon today. You thought that was a sermon. Ah, no. Verse 12. This is where it gets really fun. I'm going to have some fun with you this morning. It says, To the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. There's going to be some things in this that might sound a little surprising to you as we walk through this phrase, only because the terminology is is somewhat interesting, and I'm going to work on that. This morning I was um, enjoying a nice, quiet, Morning, listening to the rainfall, this beautiful sound on the back room there, sitting, everything's quiet around me. I just got a new phone, finally. Uh, it's been 11 years in the works, but I, I finally got a phone that I think is going to work. And uh, um, this phone has a uh, feature to it that caught me off guard. Everything's quiet and dark and lovely and enjoyable, and suddenly this huge voice, Yells, "There's lightning in the area!" Boy, did I jump out of my chair! I said, "What?" That took me off guard. All right, this passage might take you off guard too. It won't scream like that. All right, but there are sometimes when we're reading things that we say, "Wow, well, I didn't realize that." That's what he meant. That's what he was saying. So, you ready for this? Who were the first to hope in Christ? That almost sounds like. I'm first in line. Right? I mean, it's got that feel to it. Like, oh, I'm first in line. Well, I'm sorry, but you're not first in line. I wonder who might have been first in line. When you start thinking, who was the first to hope in Christ? Where do you start the list there? Disciples? I don't know. Was it the Emmaus disciples? Was it Mary, Magdalene? Was it, where, where do you start the list of who was first? And then, do you have them all in order here? What number would you be? It doesn't sound first, I bet. And so if you're looking at that, you're saying, well, who were the first to hope in Christ? Uh, you're saying, exactly how does that work? Okay, we've got to undig a little bit. We're going to have some fun. It's going to take a little effort, but trust me, it's worth it. First of all, this phrase, we who were the first to hope. Okay, I know school's out, but hang on for one minute. It's a participle. All right? It's a participle. A a participle sitting in front of you. Uh, Matter of fact, this is what's fun about it. It's the only time this phrase is ever used in Scripture. So it's a unique one at that. It's a particular participle. The only time we're going to cross it. Uh, But being a participle, that means... It is describing you or describing me. Not with adjectives like we usually use. You know, big, tall, fast, smart, whatever. We we put those words in to describe people. But this is actually taking a verb to describe you. It's an action that describes you. The word is hope. Hoping is the verb. And it's using that to describe you. Now, here's what gets interesting about this. Because it is a participle, and it's describing you, it's talking about your characteristic. It's what somebody ought to notice in you. If they were trying to describe you to somebody using a verb, and you just ran through the room, they would say, that running person. All right? That's how they would identify you in the conversation. They'd point to you using that description to identify you. That's why this really is a piece of your identification. It's talking about who you are based on an action called hope. All right? Got it so far? Now, quite particularly, Paul uses this participle in this way. It's the word pro-elpidzo. And you may say, okay, what's that? Pro-elpidzo. Uh, elpidzo is the verb for hoping. I am hoping. Elpidzo. All right? Now, that's not a potential. Like, I hope so. <laughs> we use that phrase a lot, don't we? I hope so. We're not not always so confident that what we think is going to happen, but we hope it might. We use that phrase a lot. That is not El El Elpidzo in the Greek is a confident hope. It is a confident expectation. Matter of fact, it is a constant, confident expectation love to say it that way. A constant, confident expectation. There's a difference between those who read the Bible and say, Boy, I hope it's true. And those who read it and say, I know it's true. There's a big difference between those two. There is a confident expectation in whatever this book says or promises. God has said it, and we can believe it. True? We can believe it fully, can't we? That's what we're called to do. As if we can expect nothing less than it being fulfilled exactly and perfectly the way God has written it. Do you have that kind of confidence? Or did he just kind of generalize what he's going to do? He's very specific. He writes it in such specific terms. He doesn't, I mean, if you want to make things as complicated as you possibly can, if you're going to tell the future, you add details and names and dates and places and things like that. And God can do that. And he has in the past. God could fully fulfill all of this description of you without any glitches. This is your identity in Christ, and it's not one piece or another piece, and maybe we'll get this piece up right, maybe this one will hold on, is that God already said this. And so what our hope sets in is the fact that God will fulfill exactly and perfectly what he has said. What he has said. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him might have eternal life. You know better. Whosoever believes in him has eternal life. Do you ever wonder if you have it? If you're going to make it? God just said, you have it. Believe in him, you have it. That's the kind of picture we're looking at here. This is what we look at when we look at the hope side, the hope side of things. But that's not the only word, El is not the only word in there. It had the word pro in front of it, P-R-O, yes, it sounds like that. That's not short for professional, that's the idea of before. Even the word prophecy is the idea of something before, something before. And it makes the whole thing even stronger as you listen to it here. Because it's as if saying, I have and you have a before constant confident expectation in God. What's that? That sounds very complicated. One commentator made it said this way. Hope is prior to realization. Hope is prior to realization. That means Before the event, before the results, before the end, before it is even fulfilled, we are absolutely before, confident, constantly expecting this to happen. That's where we are right now. Before it ever comes about. This is not a hope that is minimized in any way. It's not a small thing. I want to add more pieces as I build on this. and Then I'm going to sum it up in a nice way, I hope. It's also written as a participle in what we call the perfect tense. Now, to me, that's the most potent of them all. The perfect tense is so much fun to work with. It's about the most powerful expression you can use in a verb to say something is done. Because it goes like this. Not only is it done, it's completed, but it stays that way. This is not the verb you want for a visitor to come to your house and say, I'm going to stay with you. That means they're never leaving. All right, ask them what tense they're using. All right, present tense, that's okay. We can handle that. Perfect tense, that means they're living with you. They're not ever going to walk out the door. That's your verb in front of you. That's a that participle. Which shows you something really, really cool. It's an event in the past that has lasting events. Enduring uh, uh, results. Always going forward. Greek scholars really don't like the way I describe this tense. I call it the permanent tense. And when I put this all together, brace yourself for this. I'll give you the whole sentence. We... This is our identity, remember? We... Who have and always will have a prior to realization constant, confident expectation in Christ. That we are designed for the praise of His glory. Did you just get it? Is there any maybe in that? You are designed for His glory. That's where our hope sets. That's where our hope sets. We are absolutely sure that we are to His glory. We have that now in our understanding. We will always have this understanding before it ever happens. We will constantly expect that we are to His glory. You say, I don't know what he's trying to say. You need time to think? You need time to process that kind of a phrase? Would it be accurate for me to say, this is what we are? Say, yes. This is what we are. But this is not based on us, is it? None of this is a part of our doing. Where is the focus? Look at verse 12. Where is the focus of our hope? It's right there. Verse 12. The first to hope in Christ. In Christ. This is the thing that he brings about in us. And I like to simply say it this way. We can throw our complete and our permanent confidence in this truth of these things and their ultimate fulfillment because we know that Christ is trustworthy. Do we? He's trustworthy. And He will not fail to bring this about. Let me illustrate it for you. Go back to a guy by the name of Abram. In the Old Testament. Abram, he's... 99 years old. Wife is 90. No children between the two of them. And yet they had a promise, right? Yes. God made them a promise. God told them that they would have a son. And God would bless Abraham's family and make it exceedingly large through that son. That was the promise. Remember? Isaac was the answer to God's promise in Abraham's eyes. He treasured that boy. You would too. He treasured that boy. He's the answer. I'm 99 years old, and now I've got this baby in my hand, and he's going to raise him up. And you put yourself in his sandals for a minute. How would you raise that child? you know what, the first day out, he'd be in all kinds of protective gear. Helmets, shoulder pads, Looks like he's going to go out for a football team. I don't know. I'd say, wrap him in bubble tape. What do you do to protect this child? He's the promise, right? And I've got to watch him grow up. I don't know if they were real protective of Isaac. Maybe they kept him away from dangerous things. Maybe he wasn't allowed to go and draw water from the well, just in case he slipped and fell in. Maybe he wasn't allowed to go out with the sheep at night, because of wolves and lions. Maybe maybe uh, Isaac was only there to watch, but he was told, oh, don't touch that knife. <laughs> you know, those kind of things. How do you protect a child where you know the whole promise is in that child? Try to put yourself in that picture for a minute. What would Abraham have done to raise that child? But then that day came. God spoke to Abraham and said, Abraham, take now your son. Your only son. Isaac, the one you love. And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering to me. We are told that Abraham went, right? Mm -hmm. We are not told how Abraham felt. But we are told what he thought. It says in the text, on the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the lad will go over there. We will worship and return to you. Did Abraham know what he was supposed to do in that worship service? Yes. But here's what Hebrews says, in case you didn't catch it. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us in verse 17 through 19, Abraham, by faith, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise was offering up his only begotten son. Let me say it this way. He who had received the promise was giving the promise back. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. But he considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead. Watch carefully. Abraham's hope was moved. Abraham's hope was in the child. That was the promise. Abraham's hope was moved to the God who made the promise in the very act of giving his son. He had to trust God with the answer to something he didn't know how that was ever going to happen. Never seen that before. But he knew that God would not break his promise. And if Isaac were dead, God would... Must have to bring him back to life. What else can there be? If that was the answer. God has many options at his disposal. I don't know what other things he might have had planned there. But you know that Abraham's hope was tested exceedingly at that moment. Where was his hope? In the child? Or in the God who gave the promise? That was the test. That was the test. Every one of us have been saved by Christ, if you have faith in Him. Different situations. Some of you were young. Some of you were older. Some of you were steeped in sin. And some of you were cute little four-year-olds that don't seem to ever do anything wrong, right? Uh I got smiles from parents that have four-year-olds. But Jesus is the same in the fact that he died for you and he died for me. He's the same God that's moved us from death to life. He is the same God who took us from blind to vision, from darkness to light. It's the same grace poured out on you that's been poured out on me. The same degree of salvation, no matter what corner of the earth you come from. That's how he saves. Our faith has the same focus. It's on Jesus Christ. Only on Jesus Christ. So, I'm going to say something. Listen carefully. You are not barely saved. You are not. What I have been describing to you, not just today, but for the weeks before, is that something we need to rethink and understand, that we have, and we always have, a prior to the realization, constant, confident expectation in Christ. Because He made the promises. Is He going to break them? No. We are designed to the praise of his glory, and that is happening. Even now, you are to the praise of his glory. And someday you'll see it even more. But you may be thinking right now, Pastor, that's not what I've been thinking lately. I've been defeated in my behavior. I have messed to sin. I I've been a little conf- uh have little confidence in my Christian walk, I I haven't been reading my Bible, I feel small in the faith. I make a lot of mistakes. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if that's one of you. But I want to show you something. Everything I just said to you was focused on I. I feel small. I messed with sin. I have little confidence in my faith. I have not read my Bible. I make a lot of mistakes. The reality is, whenever your focus is on self, you will see failure. You will. So you know where I'm going. This passage we're studying is not set on us. (laughs) This is not a study of us. It's your identity in Christ in Christ. He is not a failure. He is not weak. He will bring this all about and it will be perfect and it will be glorious. And even before we get to the passage in verse 13 and 14, he feels it that way. In God's book it will not change. You are not barely saved. You have a constant, confident expectation in Christ. Before it's ever realized, before you ever see the end result of all these things, this is something you wear right now. It's your identity. Don't let the enemy rob you of your hope. Because he loves to attack hope. If you're not living up to your title, change your behavior. There's your pastor speaking again. Change your behavior. Change your thinking. The more time you spend with Christ, the more you would think of Him, and live for Him, and serve Him. Focus is somehow always tied to the heart. Do you know that? It's always tied to the heart. Jesus said it Himself. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. I hope you find this all encouraging as we're walking through this. Above all, I hope that you find it motivating. You are so significant in the work of God. His plans for you are amazing. That's what you're getting a glimpse of here. They're amazing things. You can trust Him completely. Have that hope. Because He will bring it about. Matter of fact, he already sees it as done. Sees it as done. Can we start living that way? This is a great passage. We haven't even hit the last two verses yet. And those are, woo, those are fun. Heavenly Father, you know our hearts. You know how we struggle in this life day to day. We get caught up in this world and the things that revolve around it. There's a lot to think about. There's a lot to do. And I know sometimes, Lord, we, we don't feel like we've lived up to what you've called us to be, called us to do. We see our shortcomings. We see our failures. We see the times where we struggle. We wonder, Lord, if your love is diminished, if your work has been changed, if somehow we might just barely squeak through And that's not the word that we saw this morning. This hope that we have in Christ is a powerful hope. And it's something you've given to us. It's not something we've conjured up ourselves in our hearts. But you have given to us this hope in Christ. You have given to us Christ. And we thank you, Lord, for that. What a difference you are making right now. Help us to live confidently in our Trust in Christ, in our identity in Christ. Help us to walk forward in such a way that we know we're bringing glory to our Savior's name because we believe what he has said. and We live like it. Do your work in our hearts today, Lord. If anyone's struggling with some of these things, bring them back again to your word and encourage their heart and show them how much you love them. Thank you, Father, for these precious truths. We give you the praise today and always. We look forward to that day when we shall see our Savior face to face. What a day that will be. Until then, Lord, give us confidence to walk. In Jesus' name, amen.